actually uh, almost anywhere you um, But So what I'm going to do is spend about 40 minutes or so walking you through this project. Randy's heard a lot uh, of this. And Randy's part of the reason why, and I'd be very interested to hear what you guys have to say about why I think I'm going to change the title from hierarchy to sort of hegemony. Because what I don't want people to do is get hung up on this word hierarchy. Although I really think that's what's going on. So I would be very interested to hear what you guys have to say. But because what I really started out, so I, I'm calling it now the micro foundations of hegemony. I figured I would try. I changed it in the last week. <laughs> because I've been fooling around, and every time I give this talk, people get totally hung up on that on that word. So I may have to succumb uh, to popular sentiment, misguided as it is, right? Uh, you know. Um, and so talking about rising powers, offshore balancers, what's going on in East Asia, and uh, you know, my my basic question is this, right? And you can characterize it in almost any way that you want, but. Why has China's rise not led to a security dilemma in East Asia? Right? Um, why does China communicate restraint in its foreign policy? And probably more significantly, why do other East Asian countries believe it? All right? uh, there's a number of theories here that would say that China's rise should actually be very destabilizing. The biggest one, of course, is sort of Mearsheimerian offensive realism. Rising power is threatening. Uh, rising powers increase their aims and scope, etc., etc. China's been growing for almost three decades now, uh, so it should be upsetting whatever balance of power exists. All the other countries should be afraid. Mearsheimer just published this piece, Why China's Rise Will Not Be Peaceful. Uh, I think it was in foreign policy or something like that, right? But then you have, like, uh, power transition types. Bob Powell's recent APSR article talks all about power transitions and how the, the most likely time for conflict is in the context of a uh, rising power that's growing and catching up. You know, and even if you go to the signaling folks like Andy Kidd or Charles Glazer or something like that, they would say that authoritarian states should have the hardest time being able to sort of credibly tell other countries what they're going to do. Because democracies are more transparent, they're more able to sort of credibly commit and signal, and that a country like uh, China should be like the least likely to reassure people through its signals because it's this, you know, this communist cabal of uh, leaders that you don't know what they're really going to do or whether they'll change their minds or not. So we have, you know, a number of reasons to think that China's rise should be threatening. You know, and in general, regional powers tend to uh, cause fear in their neighbors, right? And I think, the, you know, the Russian example is a good one. Um, Russia has been unable to credibly convince its neighbors that it has limited aims, so they bail for the West at every opportunity. You know, Ukraine's a good example. They're all scrambling all over each other to join NATO and, and Europe and everything else, right? They don't really trust Russia. Uh, you know, Germany for, for two wars kept upsetting the balance of power in Europe, and it was only when they became sort of democratized and enmeshed in the EU and NATO and everything else that we finally began to say, okay, we sort of trust them. Right? So in general, we think that these big regional powers tend to cause fear among, among other countries. So the question is, why hasn't China's rise done that? And um, why do other cases believe them? States believe them, right? Sort of increasingly, we're beginning to... When I first started giving these talks a couple of years ago, people would say, oh, it's, it's unstable, it's unstable. Um, there's increasing people who are sort of on my side who think that East Asia is relatively stable. Uh, and the explanations then tend to either be the realist one, which we'll get back to, which is just wait. It'll happen in the future. Right. Maybe we haven't seen it for 5, 10, 20 years, but it'll happen. Um, so we'll talk about that. Institutions, their explanation, you know, the I can vary-esque type of explanation. Even I can vary, though, and the institutionalists admit that the institutions in East Asia aren't really strong enough to um, explain what's going on. Trade by itself doesn't really get you to the stability, you know, so they don't have a good explanation. One of the biggest ones we have is sort of the U.S. is the offshore stabilizer or the balancer in the region. That the reason that countries aren't worried about uh, China is because of the U.S. presence there. Um, I'm going to talk about that in great detail because I don't think that that's actually the, the explanation. But that's, that's sort of where we are in, in terms of the literature, right? And what I'm going to argue is that stability is a function of both material and non-material factors. And what we tend to do is focus, particularly the sort of the structural explanations, the ones, uh, sort of realism, even a lot of the uh, 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 power transition ones, focus on just the size of China and what's going on. But really, stability is a function of both material and non-material powers, uh, factors. 
And looking at both of those, China has communicated its preferences or its intentions, what it wants to do, credibly to its neighbors. So I'm not going to spend as much time today on the material side. Uh, I'm going to briefly talk about it. But I'm really going to spend more time on this, this thing that we call sort of signaling or communicating or something else, right? And so the, 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 the theory that I'm going to talk about is that I'm, I'm fooling around with and that I, you know, I keep trying to change it because I never seem to be able to get, I never seem to convince anyone. <laughs> so we'll see if I can change anyone's mind, right? But the, the question is sort of, when is preponderant power stable? Or whatever you want to call it, right? I've been using the term hierarchy. I don't like to use the term unipolarity because that implies too much an acceptance of sort of Waltzian realism. But, you know, when is a big country and a bunch of then smaller countries, when is that stable and then when might not it be? And in order to do so, I'm going to first have to define the region. Because one thing also that will always happen in talks about Asia is that it goes from like Turkey all the way over to Japan. Um, and people throw in a bunch of, you know, well, what about Russia? What about India? The argument that I'm going to be making is what I would call sort of East Asia. Not, I'm not including India. We'd be happy to talk about India and Russia and all these other countries. But I'm talking about China's relations with East Asia, which would be mostly North and Southeast Asia, sort of regions where they're basically focused on their own interactions first and foremost. Japan, Korea, China, and then Southeast Asia, sort of Taiwan, ASEAN, you know, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, etc. And so that's the region that I'm, that I'm really trying to talk about. And in terms of sort of mapping this out, a sort of quick overview of, of the argument, you can divide them up on sort of two core dimensions. And the first one is sort of relative size compared to China. High, low, or high, low, right? Big, small. There's only one country that realistically is a balancer to China, whatever you want to call it, to Japan. All the rest are really tiny. And then, on the other side, and this is where we're going to get to the U.S. as the offshore balancer, relations with the U.S., sort of distant, Vietnam, North Korea, not really close friends of the United States right now, you know. Close, really only Taiwan is clinging to the United States. And then a bunch of countries that are sort of in the middle. And I'm going to talk about these in flux. I'm calling them in flux because it's not clear which way countries like South Korea are going to lean. Uh, a couple years ago, I was giving a talk on um, uh, a unified Korea's foreign policy. And uh, I was asked, uh, what would a unified Korea? So we're speculating way out into the future. This is 2001. And I said, you know, it's not clear. But maybe a unified Korea would lean towards China and not the US. And this guy, uh, it was down in, in Washington. So it was like half academics, half state and department defense people. And this guy, in the, in the public session, not privately, in the public session, he was like, I didn't know Berkeley came this far east. But I sure don't know what you've been smoking. You know, We're going to be in Korea for 50 years, right? The perception was the U.S. South Korea are huge ally. They're really strong, you know. Now it's more the convention wisdom that South Korea is not necessarily that clear. I mean, this is really in flux. What what's going on? Um, and so we're going to talk about how that actually is working out. But in terms of the theory, then, so that's the region, right? And in my attempt to do an end run around these things, I'm going to try and wrap myself in the formal theorists who talk about asymmetric information, right? Uh, and it's just another it's just another fancy way of talking about what countries know about each other and how they sort of figure out what their core interests are and what they, what, what they are sort of bluffing. I was just talking, uh, you know, doing that OSU radio thing and everyone was trying to figure out what are China's preferences? Are they really going to fight over Taiwan or not? Right? A lot of times you can't tell if, it's, if China's really going to fight or they won't. You know? So how do you figure out what, what are a country's core interests? When is it serious? When is it bluffing? You know? when, when are those signals credible or not? Right? That's you know, one, of the, one of the main factors that, that they've sort of identified as a source of, of um, conflict. Now, I'm going to get back to the information in a minute, but I want to point out here I am sort of building on a, a Schwellerian view of the world. Right? When we talk about rising power, we tend to talk about the costs they can, they can pose. Tanks and guns, and the bigger they are, the more they can bully other, other countries. But we also tend to forget that a rising power is potentially also really beneficial. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, everyone and their cousin is trying to go over to China and do business there, because it's a huge market and there's a lot of gains to be had. So, so power, rising power, whatever, big power, yeah, it can potentially pose costs, but it can also potentially pose real benefits. And what happens is that it's, you know, countries' decisions about whether to embrace it or, or uh, fear it is going to be some kind of trade-off on these material benefits. How much do I fear them? 
how much can I gain from if I lie closely to them? So there's material factors, right? But going back to this information, you also really want to know what they're going to do. Right? If they get to be big, are they going to be a responsible power or are they not? Right? And that comes back to things like signaling and how you figure out another country's preferences or not. Because you can, you can imagine a big, powerful country that reassures the people around it, the countries around it, or that is incredibly threatening. And so countries are not only looking at the, act, the absolute sort of material factors, plus and minus on that side, but they're trying to figure out, okay, what is this country going to do? And not only what is the big country trying to communicate, but then, just as importantly, do the other countries believe it or not? So I know that's a very quick overview. But what, what, so what I'm doing in this then is then taking these ideas and going to talk about China. As I said, I'm going to talk about China's rising power. Most countries in the region see the cost is relatively low and the benefits is relatively high. Partly that's because they view China's preferences as being relatively restrained. That China plans on being a sort of responsible hegemon, <laughs> big leader. Uh, this is sort of contra to much of the way that we in the United States have thought about what a rising China will do. The one exception to this is China's message to Taiwan, which is exactly the opposite. And in part, one of the reasons the other countries believe them is that there's a real difference there between what China says <coughs> to Taiwan and what it says to the other countries. And they tend to believe it. So let me zip through the empirical evidence uh, as quickly as possible, uh, realizing that I'm now going to be covering, even trying to just keep the, the folks on these days that we're going to zip through things. But first, you know, how big is China? Realistically, it's the only country that you could compare to Japan and the United States, the biggest countries in the world. Right? I mean, not clear there's two. Uh, this is an uh, economist intelligence unit. They use market exchange rates, which China has only a one trillion dollar economy. Not really clear how you know how big it is. One to two trillion. CIA purchasing power parity, six trillion bigger than Japan. Right? I'm I'm not that concerned about saying definitively it's bigger or smaller than Japan. My point is only that you can actually compare them. Whereas we put almost any other country on here, there's no way that you would get them close to Japan, much less the United States. And over the last 30 years, it's gone up at 8% a year. So this, is, this has genuinely been a quickly rising power in an important part of the world. So what has China done to try and communicate its preferences? The big thing that China has been doing is their foreign policy causes a peaceful rise. Uh, they've undertaken a lot of steps in the last 10 or 15 years to try and communicate that what they want is economic growth at home, stability in their, in their border regions and, and with their neighbors. They've increasingly tried to uh, uh, sort of be more sophisticated in their foreign policy. Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I was talking to a Chinese diplomat in Singapore and said, yeah, understandably, 20 years ago, the East Southeast Asian countries didn't like us. We were supporting the Malaysian Communist Party. We were, you know, getting in spats all over the place. We didn't, you know, we're interfering in Indonesia. You know, but we're different now. And we were trying to let them know that we genuinely aren't going to be doing that anymore. One of the ways they've done this resolved the number of territorial disputes. There are still some that are outstanding. Senkapu's Island, you know, uh, Taiwan, I suppose you could call one of those. Uh, but Vietnam, they've, they've settled, settled the uh, disputes. Mongolia, a lot of Central Asian countries. The trend has been, over the last 25 years, for them to settle a lot of these. And in fact, it's not a surprise that a lot of East Asia has unsettled territorial disputes because the region, nobody had, nobody had written them down before in 1945. All of a sudden, you've got a bunch of independent countries that have never had to sort this out. So it's not only China that has territorial disputes. Japan is not sorted out with Russia, Korea, or China. You know? So the trend, though, has been for China to try and resolve, resolve some of the most important ones. They've joined a number of international institutions. And uh, a sort of corollary argument of this that I'll get to in the conclusion is that China is actually taking a leadership role in a lot of the economic regional integration that's going on in East Asia. So uh, ACFTA is the ASEAN-China Free Trade Agreement. Uh, ASEAN is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Um, they're in talks to have a free trade area there. ASEAN plus three, proposed by the Chinese, is ASEAN plus Korea, Japan, China. Again, talks about a wider area. Uh, ARF is an ASEAN regional forum that they're a part of. 
Uh, they're talking about sort of a trilateral Japan, Korea, China, free trade area, and things like that. So they're getting heavily involved in international institutions in a way that even if you read the literature from a decade ago, from the mid-90s, people were highly skeptical about whether these would even occur or whether China would be anything other than a disruptive force that they would get involved. Again, the trend over time has been very much towards sort of getting in charge, joining these institutions. And I think perhaps most importantly, and I'm sure we, you know, we may talk about this, but the, the big thing that everyone worries about in terms of war in the, in the region is, well, Taiwan's one, and the second one's these Sprantly Island disputes. There's a series of sort of uninhabited rocky islands in the middle of, I should have had a map. Oh, well. Anyway, right, right sort of in the middle, 12 nations claim these islands. Again, it's not just China. Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam, Taiwan, China, Brunei, you know, six major ones claim these islands. Nobody cares other than they think there's massive oil um, deposits underneath. Significantly, though, in 2002, China signed this uh, memorandum where they all agreed that they would resolve the ownership rights in a multilateral forum um, and that they wouldn't use force. This is the, um, among a number of other things, this is a big one. And in particular, the contrast with what they're doing in Taiwan, I think, is important. What they're, what, what they're clearly trying to communicate is, okay, we are going to work here with you guys and resolve these things. Okay, so, do the other, do the other countries actually believe them or not? Well, some that just sort of don't cling to the U.S. And I'm only going to talk about two uh, in, in particular here, right? If we go down, Vietnam and the Philippines, right? This is the uh, undefended border at Lao Cai. This guy, that's the, that's the one, the one guy, everyone, you know, it just goes through. I had a picture from the other side as well. It's just this massive road and, you know, all these carts and everything else, right? This is very different from 25 years ago. Uh, they resolved their borders. They are not defending their border. Uh, they're involved heavily in trade and investment now. Vietnamese military delegations are going to China all the time. Vietnam has historically always been sort of on the border of China. And in fact, one of the, uh, one of the Vietnamese generals uh, is quoted about I don't know, a couple of years ago saying, you know, we can never confront China. Even after we would fight a war and sometimes we'd even beat them, we always send tribute because they're always going to be there. Right? This doesn't mean that they love China or anything else. And in my conclusion, I'm going to talk a little bit about how large countries get viewed. But certainly, the trend, Vietnam, of all the countries in East Asia, aside from North Korea, is not relying on a U.S. security guarantee, a U.S. umbrella, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to balance Chinese power. And they certainly don't show the indication. Any, you know, the evidence is that they're actually moving towards gaining what China has to offer rather than fearing it and trying to work against it somehow. Uh, the Philippines, this is the handover of Subic Bay in 1992. The Philippines over the last 15 years has moved farther away from the United States. They haven't broken with the U.S. or anything like that. And one of the more dark things that people are always saying is like about the alliances is, oh, they, you know, we're going to have no relationship at all. Countries aren't going to do that. But certainly compared to 15 years ago, Subic Bay was, was the largest air, uh, naval base in the world outside of the United States at its height. It employed over 36,000 Filipinos, you know, you dry dock aircraft carriers, the whole bit. Um, and in 1991, the Philippines decided not to renew the, the bases agreement. So, you know, Subic and Clark Air Force Base, they were closed. Uh, in the last couple years, because of the terrorists, a couple hundred U.S. troops have been sort of allowed back in, and they've, they've done this kind of... Um, uh, cooperation. But it's nowhere near the size that it was 15 years ago. Philippines also has refused to be uh, pinned down as to whether they would get involved in a China-Taiwan war. Um, and most people privately will tell you they have no intention of getting involved in that kind of thing. So they've begun to move much more um, away from the U.S. All right. Taiwan clearly clinging to the U.S. as the offshore balancer. And you can totally understand why. China here is doing everything it can to make it clear that they will use force and that Ch Taiwan is part of theirs. It still might be a question of, as to whether we should believe them in bluffing or not. Taiwan tends to believe them. <laughs> Most people tend to believe that China is serious. Uh, latest thing that in March 14, the uh, People's Congress or whatever it's called passed a law you know, authorizing the use of force if Taiwan declares independence, etc., etc. Uh, they didn't send anyone to uh, the Pope's funeral because Taiwan sent someone and they weren't about to legitimize Taiwan as a separate, as a separate country. Um, 
And so China has made very clear that they don't consider Taiwan to be an independent country, that is the, the renegade province. And Taiwan and everyone else in the region tends to believe that China is serious about it. So Taiwan, not surprisingly, like, I'm sure some of you guys have gone on the sort of the, the little victory tour that you can go with, like, you know, Taiwan spends millions of dollars trying to get American officials, academics, whatever, to go over to Taiwan and get a good, good view of them. Uh, it's a great boondoggle, by the way, so you should go. But, um, you know, they clearly are trying to get the U.S. to stay and, and, and defend them, right? And I think, you know, Avery Goldstein keeps hammering this on me, like, you know, who cares what these small countries do? They're too small to balance. And yet, I don't actually think that's the case, because if Taiwan, with 20 million people right on the border of China, can cling to the United States in order to balance rising Chinese power, certainly all the other East Asian countries could be doing that as well. And the fact that they are not doing, this is an example of trying to cling, even if you're too small, to take on China by yourself. Right? And that, I think, is the contrast with this and what the other East Asian countries are doing in their foreign policy towards the United States, belies the notion that they're just sort of stuck with China, particularly countries like Korea, uh, Philippines, whatever else, could be working much harder to say, hey, U.S., we're your good buddy, and they're not. And this contrast, I think, shows that, okay, there is an alternative here. It's not that they're just too small to balance and they're stuck being with China. Um, briefly on secondary states in flux, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but South Korea is clearly a country that has begun to move farther along, is trying to decide where it fits, just like Vietnam. Korea's, you know, they're not picking up and moving. They're always going to be next to China. And so what you've seen in the last 10 years or so is a South Korean foreign, the latest thing that happened, I was just over there, and the latest thing that the president said, we want to be sort of a regional, independent, multilateral balancer or something. Nobody could figure out what he meant, right? And, and actually, U.S. embassy officials were trying to pin him down for what he meant, because they're clearly not going to be a regional balancer in the same way. Um, but what he's trying to do is articulate some kind of foreign policy that's very different from the policy of the last 50 years, which was U.S. We are U.S. strong ally. And actually, if you, if you hear their, 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 their PR, the propaganda, they say, we're, you know, they have the third largest contingent of troops in Iraq, U.S., U.K., and South Korea, blah, blah, blah. So they're doing their best not to sort of get in a fight with the United States. But at the same time, they are clearly rethinking their foreign policy positions. And the big one is, not surprisingly, over uh, what's going on with North Korea. In the context of a, of a United States and a South Korea that disagree about how to deal with North Korea, America, as you probably know, wants to do hardline containment policy. The South Koreans want to engage the economy and, and help reforms. Real disagreements about how to deal with North Korea. China has emerged as the country that is potentially, the, the, not potentially, is actually the mediator, the go-between. In other words, sort of taking the leadership role. Right now, who is sort of managing the six-party talks in, on the Korean Peninsula is China. And so what you get are things like this. South Korea joins China in criticizing the United, uh, U.S. On, on North Korea. Okay. This is not to say that they are abandoning the alliance or anything else, but clearly the movement is away from U.S. number one to a rethinking of the relationships in the region. Not along the lines that the, again, going back to the theories at the beginning, rising powers threatening all these countries are going to be worried. You're seeing something very different occurring here. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Now, the big question, of course, even if all these small countries are, you know, maybe they can balance, maybe they're not, you know, people don't really care that much about them. What they really care about is Japan, you know, because that's a huge country, 120 million people, $4 trillion economy, right? And Japan has, in the past uh, year or so, begun to have an increasingly sort of, what are the, what are the, the, the phrases, like, a muscular foreign policy, a forward-leaning, you know, uh, they're starting to rethink the uh, Article 9 that says we'll renounce the use of force. So, in particular, the sort of just wait is focused on what Japan will do, right? Just wait. At some point, they're going to they're gonna balance. Um, and I want to say this. Right now, I think Japan is in flux, and it's not clear which way they're going to go. There are, you, you know, depending on what your sort of uh, priors are, you can look at Japan and you can see real evidence that, ooh, they are going to uh, sort of compete with China. And you can find real evidence that they're not. It's in flux right now. But I'll point out some things that don't necessarily follow with just the uh, uh, competition thing. And the first one is uh, leadership, and the second is sort of perceptions and interactions with China. Um, in terms of, of leadership, I think one thing that's really interesting is that no matter what you sort of talk about Japan's 
uh, foreign policy. And I know I'm getting into trouble here, but when you talk about sort of the national identity or the way that Japan has uh, put itself into the region, it has not traditionally been a uh, leader. And I think the best example of that is the difference between Japanese economic development strategy and China's economic development strategy. There's a lot of articles that have talked for, for decades about sort of Japan's reactive foreign policy. They're, they're not a normal nation because blah, 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 right? But I think the best way to, to view sort of how Japan interacts with the world is its, is its decades-long development policy, which has been keep everybody else out, foster domestic industries, compete heavily for exporting to other countries, which led to huge problems with everyone that it traded with. You guys all remember the United States, I mean, 15 years ago or something like that. Um, but all these Southeast Asian, all these Asian countries, right? It's a very sort of, um, not necessarily zero-sum, but a very sort of arm's length type of development strategy. And the difference is the China development strategy, which is far more, in many ways, far more along the lines of the United States, which is very open to foreign direct investment, very open to trading. I know that not now the United States, they, we want to put some textile tariffs on things like that. But the China development strategy has been much more open and much more interactive with the rest of the region and the world, in which case, countries such as South Korea, uh, Vietnam, etc., are, are rushing into China the way they never had an opportunity to rush into Japan. And it's not surprising that China has a more central leadership role or is beginning to take one than Japan ever had. And this is why I say, I know I'm getting into trouble because I'm talking about the Japanese mind or something, but you know, they have not been a leader the same way. The only time they ever try, again, and I don't mean to get too sort of historical culturally here, but every time they try, they screw it up, right? Like, oh, co-prosperity sphere, right? Nobody likes that. <laughs> They're still mad about that, right? It's a different way that Japan interacts with the rest of East Asia than does China. And I think uh, just one quick thing here. Oh, man. FDI. Well, you, you guys know, right? The live foreign direct investment into, into Japan is all negative. If, if the chart came through, and then you'd see the China one is all positive, right? A radically different way in which they inter interact with the world, right? That whatever the guy that just took over Sony, that's the exception, even to today, than the rule. So, uh, fascinating chart there. Sorry about that. Um, uh, Japan economic, uh, Japan-China economic ties, right? Again, even Japan is rushing to get in with the, the China market. Uh, so, so China passed the U.S. as the largest exporter to Japan. Japan's uh, China's largest trading partner. You know, the, the level of interaction between these two countries. There is a level of political sparring, right? Every time they redo the textbooks, which they're doing right now, every time one of their prime ministers comes out and says, well, I'm going to go to the shrine and, you know, pay homage to the war criminals, China and, China and Korea predictably get all mad and, and angry and stuff like that. At the same time as that's going on, much greater interaction on the economic front. So again, even though Japan said we sort of are watching China, you know, they put some mild language in their, in their uh, defense policy guideline review of, of last year, uh, this is, this is a, a very muted step. And I agree, it's not clear which way Japan will go. But the evidence is really sort of mixed here, and it's not just it's a matter of time that they're definitely going to balance or uh, contain China. Okay. Um, so in this, in this very brief run-through, I'm going to make some conclusions and then uh, some predictions. I'm willing to put them out there. Uh, so my conclusion, you know, and again, this shouldn't be that surprising, but like I, I sent this paper to Dick Samuels, who is great, and he's a wonderful guy. And it was very interesting. He said, I agree totally with your empirical analysis, but your explanation, I still can't get away from material factors. Right? You know, we know that, that, that power matters and material factors matter, but preferences and what countries plan on doing with their, with their power matters just as much. Um, and here's where I said I was going to sort of talk about how other countries view big countries, right? And the example, I think, here is the United States and Latin America, right? Um, I don't know how many of you like soccer. Right? I live for that game. Uh, every time the U.S. national team plays, like in Panama or Mexico or whatever else, right, they, they hate us. You know, they're throwing crap onto the field, booing during the national... You know, they know that the United States is the most important country, that they have to deal with us, that there are real benefits to be had. That doesn't mean they love it. They Nobody loves being number two and having this huge country down there. After the U.S. beat Mexico in the 2002 World Cup, this great quote in the newspaper where some, there interviewed some Mexican guy, and he's like, 
You know, they always treat us like rats and dogs. But we always had soccer. No, we don't even have that. You know, okay, right? The point being, my point is not that every East Asian country here, and it's funny because the, the Chinese tend to love this, of course, you know, because I seem like I'm a big, you know, China. I'm not saying that. It's not like I have some bias towards China's great and everybody loves China. No. In fact, leaders tend to do things and push other people around. It's not necessarily sort of love of the Chinese culture, but a sort of adjustment to what China is going to be and the fact that they're stuck there and that they are beginning, I think, to believe that China will be a sort of responsible power, the same way that most countries in, in Latin America, you know, they don't like what the U.S. does a lot of the time, but on the whole, they think we're a relatively responsible leader. Okay? Um, moving on to theoretical Credible signals have an impact on a state's alignment decision. It's not just power. That's another way of saying that preferences are important. Right? If you can signal credibly, um, you know, I sort of go through that a little bit more in the, in the forthcoming book. Um, right? And yet, there's going to be a number of factors that matter, right? In other words, the, 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 the approach that I'm taking actually sort of subsumes or is complementary with institutional perspectives and, and power perspectives because I'm focusing on how the countries are, are viewing this. This is why, you know, I'm not saying at the, at the expense of institutions, right? They're part of how China is going to integrate with the world. Trading relations, investment relations, that's part of it, as well as sort of, uh, you know, their size and their leadership things. Um, so... In terms of my predictions, I mean, you know, it follows, okay? Now, I could be wrong. If these things go right, and the big thing I would say that they couldn't change is China's domestic economy, right? As long as they remain sort of stable and some growth and they can manage it, this will happen. Clearly, there are things that could upset this. You know, a, I don't know, the Chinese Communist breakdown, a, I don't know what you would call it if it was China, that, you know, some, another democratic movement, etc. But, Given some kind of continued China's economic growth, East Asian states will increasingly lead toward China. Based on what I've said, if forced to choose, these countries may choose China. They don't want to choose. Nobody wants to choose. Well, here's the thing, right? This is the interesting thing. So South Korea refused to name North Korea or China as a potential enemy. Right? This just happened in the latest uh, defense policy yearbook, or whatever, defense white paper. The Americans were like, pressuring them. You've got to name them as, as an enemy. And the South Koreans were saying, look, by definition, we create an enemy if we name them as an enemy. And we don't want to do that. Right? You guys don't name enemies. You can go to any of the, the, the Pentagon kinds of things. You, know, you can't find who's our number one enemy. Right? Countries don't want to have to choose. Right? Uh, one thing we were talking about is, would South Korea support U, use of U.S. troops in a Taiwan war? Right? You don't know. You absolutely don't know what would happen. Following this line of logic, probably they wouldn't. I've actually asked like Filipino military, South Korean military. Most of them say, we don't want to choose. And if you really press them, I say, well, what do you think would happen? They're like, I don't know. You know, I'm willing to bet, or this would be the prediction, right? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But it would be a force to choose. They might not choose the United States. Well, two other things would happen then. Uh, 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 right? First, an American attempt to balance China may be harder to, to create than we think. Japan right now seems to be sort of willing to go along, but of course Japan doesn't have to choose either. Um, and finally, you know, a withdrawal of U.S. troops. If it's true that these countries are increasingly looking at China and saying, okay, they're big, they're going to be around for a while, U.S. troops may not re uh, create the instability that, that we tend to think they will, sort of, you know, they're rebalancing them in, in Korea. We may be, you know, we're trying to rebalance them out of Okinawa, still somewhere in Japan, but no one will take them. You know, we'd like to move the troops around and, and draw some down and stuff like that. Um, and I think that's the last one. Oh, okay, that, that goes back to the second one. I got these out of order. Um, in any case, that was a, a quick run-through, and I'd be delighted to uh, take your uh, comments. And we'll start with Randy. All right. You'll notice I didn't use the word hierarchy once. I think there's a
we've seen a lot of teaching Russia and Japan, even with their difficulties. But let me, let me go through why I, why I think that material things matter. Why I think I'm not matter. saying they don't. You know that, right? I really think it matters. I just heard a conference on China last week, uh, and I think I'm going to write this article because I think the Chinese stuff is going to be at all. Is that the, re the reason the United States, if you want to see balancing in Asia, just let the United States leave. You know, if we get out, then we'll get a balance of power in Asia, right? The reason you say they trust China's intentions and that somehow China can make credible commitments. I mean, this is the old theorem. It perfect, works perfectly for theorem. The rising power cannot make a credible commitment that its intentions won't change once it gets powerful yes. enough to dominate all the rest. Yes. You're saying, well, China has solved that problem, but you don't tell how. They're trying to. No, they solved it because the United States is there. That's how they solved it. As long as the United States is there, it doesn't matter what China's intentions are. And besides, it's going to be a long way off. So, so the United States is there. They understand that. They, they, you, you're exactly right. There are lots of benefits to be had by trading with China. It's a big state. There are lots of benefits. There is no downside because the United States is engaged. Now, the, the interesting thing is that if both sides got their wish, I think everything would go to hell in a handout. If they would get exactly what they don't want, and I'd love to know what you think their preferences are. The U.S., I think, does not want to be extruded from East Asia by China, which you didn't mention is precisely what those institutions are there to do, right? I mean, they don't include the U.S. Exactly. Ch China's called... China is using institutions and taking all of our language and using us to say, great, great, we'll create all these institutional arrangements and guess what? You're not there. So it's a great way to get rid of us. And it also makes them look precisely what you want to do when you're rising power. Look benign. Right? You want to look benign. So diplomatic cover. They're doing all the stuff and they're playing it perfectly. Right? And the U.S. is like, we would like you to be a democrat. I don't think the U.S. wants China to be a democratic, great, dominant power. I think it'd rather have to be a weak authoritarian power than a strong democratic power. But we act like we don't care as long as they're democratic. But of course, if they're democratic, then there's no anxiety, there are less anxieties in Asia, and as long as they're still there, then you're right, they'll bandwagon with China. That's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on here. That China's playing the game perfectly. They're, they're being an institutional player, they're looking like a, a good neighbor, and they're reaping all these benefits, and precisely what you think a rising power is doing, and they want to get the U.S. out of the region. Okay, a couple things. First one is, absolutely, you have, you have encapsulated exactly what I was saying, the just way, the rising power, blah, 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 right? That, absolutely, I think a lot of people see that, okay? Um, let me take them a little bit one by one, because I tried to deal with a lot of the stuff in, in the talk itself. How you define the region, this is always the problem when you're doing Asia. Is the U.S. a regional power, is it not? Right? And so I use the Jervis and Buzan. In the paper, I, I spend a little more time talking about this for, for analytic clarity. Right? The sort of definition of a region, Barry Buzan, Jervis, they talk about where the, the states in, in this, how a system is comprised of states who are primarily focused on the interactions and issues that are going on within the other states. And that other states that occasionally come in and out are not properly in the system itself. And I think the best example of why theoretically you have to define the United States and Russia as not East Asian powers is because not that they don't have a lot of ties there, but the number one, I think, is the best example is Iraq and North Korea. The countries in the region, Japan, China, South Korea, etc., they are focused first and foremost on the region. All you have to do is go over there. That's what they care about. Iraq is third on, the, on the, you know, page three in the United States, we are clearly concerned about Iraq number one, right? We have other interests. Maybe, maybe we are, you know, up here at the sort of global level or something. But clearly, we only get intermittently involved. And in fact, right now, the U.S. foreign policy over the next four years, here's my other prediction, we'll come back. We should write this because I actually have a piece of prediction because I want to put them out there and we'll see. I'll come back in a decade from now. We'll see, right? Um, but we'll get this. But right, right now, four years from now, we're going to be in the same place we are in North Korea that we are today. Lots of talk, no action. Why? Because the administration is focused on something else. And what we really don't want to have happen in North Korea is something where we have to waste our energy on it. This is actually not a bad outcome for the U.S., right? No war. They don't really have to do anything. North Korea hasn't tested a nuke where they'd have to do something, right? So we can, you know, we're just trying to make that status quo go away while we focus on Iraq. Okay, so for theoretical reasons, in terms of how you're going to come up with a definition, I mean, those are reasonably, I think that's a reasonable way to define it. When you then start talking about how they interact, yeah, they can come in and, and mess things up. But are they properly a part of the region where they're focused on? But that's a, that's a, that's a sort of 
precursor to the to the other things. And I don't want to go back through the talk because absolutely that's the realist argument. Sort of like power matters. The U.S. is there. What I'm trying to do is show that okay, the evidence. I mean that's absolutely right. And I don't mean to you know uh, you know that's sort of one of the things that I think about sort of realist like the worst case scenario. Okay, because we don't have a lot. That's why I went through these countries in in broad detail about okay. What evidence do we have that any of these countries are acting that way? So yeah, in the just wait scenario, that could happen. But the evidence on the ground that any of these countries, aside from Taiwan and maybe Japan, are doing anything other than sort of working with China and, and, and sort of keeping their relations with the U.S. warm, because nobody wants to have that relation with the U.S. There's not a whole lot of evidence that, that, that they're even thinking about sort of attempting to balance China. And a, an example, a Malaysian foreign minister a couple years ago said, we have to want China to succeed. Here's, and this is a material argument. We have to want China to succeed. If they don't, the outflow of people will knock us all down. <laughs> right? But, but my point, Randy, is we don't have evidence that they're doing that. And so this is why I said I have to put them in the sort of prediction side about what would happen. And I'm happy to put those up against the just wait. Right? Meaning, here's, here's what would happen if it's hard. And if not, here's what would happen years. And, you know, in the, in the concluding chapter of my forthcoming paradigm-shifting book, no. <laughs> um, this is exactly what I do, precisely because many of these aren't going to be concluded. I mean, we're not going to draw a definitive conclusion. And for, I mean, we've been on panels for a couple of years, but when I started thinking about this, it was mid-90s, right after the sort of the classic Friedberg and Betts arguments, right for rivalry, balancing literature in Asia. And I thought, okay, it's been five, ten years. It's too soon to tell. By 2000, I'm like, okay, it's been 15, maybe 20 years, depending on how you measure China's rise. 2005, I mean, we're getting on to 27 years of rapid Chinese growth. And I think, absolutely, we're still in flux in deciding it, but you, you do have to grant me that that's, a, that's enough time when I can begin to at least say, okay, it has a... a degree on power is amazing. You really important. The U.S. relation to South American countries, Latin American countries, is an analogy for China and East Asia. But I think it's wrong. I think you're exactly wrong. It's an analogy. It's, it's United States, it's Brazil is China in Latin America, right? Brazil, why does nobody fear Brazil in Latin America? Because the United States is there, right? They can't challenge the United States. Well, what, <laughs> why, why is Brazil, no, why, if the United States, you can separate the United States, get them out of okay. the power. Now there's an earthquake. In, we in Latin America, they matter. Yeah. The power instruments only matter if the United States is not paying attention on dominating the region. That's exactly what's going on in Asia. If the U.S. were to get out tomorrow, and every two, but we are just out of these things entirely, I'll bet you they start balancing. Well, here's, here's okay, uh, two things about that. The first one is, when we talk again about sort of the U.S., being out, right? Because clearly we're always going to have trading ties with these, with this region, right? I think already we're out a lot farther than we realize in the United States, right? As you said, most of the most of the stuff that's going on, the economic stuff, the integration, that's going on without the United States. Starting in, you know, in large part it was like '97 and even beforehand, when these countries, you know, were trying to come up with this stuff, they said, no, 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 we'll do it, and then they sort of came in and, you know, uh, said, oh, yeah. Because the relevant national experiment going on now is actually, if you look at the material indicators, South Africa would be more hegemonic in Africa than Brazil is in South America. I don't think it would claim that the U.S. is holding the offshore balance for Africa, no. and yet no one's balancing against South Africa. Because South Africa now dominates East African economy, let alone Southern hmm. African economy. Hmm. I haven't thought of it yet. So I want to move on. Let's see. Alex, and we'll, we'll go around. Um, I guess I'm not being an expert. I am persuaded that other countries do believe that China has sort of benign tensions or at least it's going to restrain itself. But I guess I'm not clear on why and what your answer is to the, to the explanation to the US question of what is causing them to believe this. I mean, after all, joining these institutions, joining ARC and so on, that can easily be seen as cheap talk. Yeah. And especially if you're trying to signal your intentions for the future, it's especially hard to solve that problem. So, um, and in particular, what are the non-material factors that help explain why these countries are believing this? To my mind, so, and especially given that it's a non-democracy, okay, so I don't hear what your theory is. And, um, in the sense, the conclusion I draw from your talk is that it's actually not that hard to know other countries' minds. The whole realist concern with this problem is really overstated in general. This is one more example of the fact that it's actually pretty easy to know what other states' intentions are. Um, but I guess more generally, what is the yeah. explanation as to why they believe? Yeah. You know, this is, this is what I, when I told you beforehand. I've sort of, you know, 
I do think that the sort of worry about intentions is a little overstated. What I what I do in, in a little bit more in 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 the sort of the book is talk about, you know, because here's the thing, one one of the problems with the formal theorists is they sort of talk about cheap talk and, and, and credible signals. But empirically that's extremely hard to figure out. And like Andy Kidd and Charlie Glazer have, have taken some first cuts at that, like sort of defense spending and things. And what I do is I talk about sort of two general ways in which I think China has become or just in general, in which ways you, you sort of find out whether signals are credible or not. And the first one is sort of changes over time, right? Because what's happened in, in the case of China is as their power has risen, their demands have actually decreased. And this is very different than you would predict. Rising power, if rising power increases and your sort of demands and your, and your sort of um, uh, attempts to dominate the region increase, well then you're not sure whether that's whatever, but certainly it's working across purposes here. Meaning, rising power, reduced demands. People say, okay, maybe they're serious. The second one is sort of the pattern across. Because I'm not sure that there's such a clear distinction between cheap talk and then, and then credible signals. A lot of, and you, all you have to do here is look at what North Korea and the United States are talking to each other about, right? They are communicating every day about what they think. And one of the things I think is interesting is the reason that North Korea doesn't, I mean, the U.S. says on, on two hands, on the one hand, we have no intention to use force. Uh, but all options remain on the table. So, of course, they don't believe it. Now, it's all cheap talk. But when I say this, you know, and they'll say, look, well, we're not going to make it. So, we'll put it in writing, do something. Oh, we're not going to do that. Right? So, even things like cheap talk, and, you know, you sign a treaty, you can always change your mind. Countries don't do that. Right? So, there's, there's a pattern, and then there's changes over time. And, yeah, I mean, aside uh, getting deeper than that in terms of why, how you sort of assess threats, and how you decide what's a threat or not is sort of hard. And what I'm saying is that the pattern in East Asia has been pretty consistent and fits with sort of as China has risen and it's gone down and they've resolved a bunch of territory. You know, it's, it's sort of the, 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 the vast array of things, right? And you're absolutely right. Minds can change, et cetera, et cetera. There's no, there's no doubt. I mean, but I don't think that there is an answer to that question. If you want to be, and I'm not calling you paranoid, but if you want to be paranoid, you won't trust anyone ever, you know, no matter what happens. I actually think intentions are hard to figure out, and I don't see any evidence you have that's really persuasive to me that Japan and South Korea are not worried about China. I'd like to hear more about their military deployment. I'd like to know whether they're asking U.S. military forces to be withdrawn. I'd like to know if Japan is calling for us to be expelled militarily from the region. Uh, I mean, I, when I talk to Koreans, I hear enormous ambivalence, you know, that there's a a real frustration with an aggressive American policy that might get them embroiled in a war. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, a sense that America needs to stay here. And, you know, if, if you start talking about first principles, uh, that American withdrawal from South Korea completely militarily, how do you suspect the South Koreans will react to that? Not the students at the university. I mean, my, my perception yeah. is that this, there's a big difference here between tactical frustration and strategic desire for disengagement. I'd like to hear more about your evidence that there's some yeah. uh, quietude, if that's even a word, yeah. calm, that they can avoid, that they can, this economic exchange is interesting, uh, but there's another dimension of political relationships yeah. that have to do with security. Yeah. Well, one thing is, like, you know, South Korea's military planning is um, almost all sort of uh, sea-based, air-based. Like, if they were genuinely worried about a sort of China, you'd think that even if the U.S. were there, if they're going to be paranoid, they're going to be thinking, if the U.S. leaves, what are we going to have to do if we're stuck? Well, China doesn't need ships to get to us. They need, you know, to walk over the border. So you, you'd expect, then, that their military plan would be focused on whatever kinds of being able to deter a massive Chinese onslaught, right? And you don't see that happening. Um, in terms of Japan... You know, their military, uh, the, the, the recently released military guidelines call for, obviously, an upgrading of all, of all their equipment and things like that, right? Um, I think both of them right now are still sort of uh, ambiguous, meaning they don't have to choose. And you're absolutely right. They don't have to choose. In terms so why are they concerned about North Korean proliferation? They're not. It would seem to me if they're so, they're not. No. That the U.S. is, right? That's precisely, so where, the, that's precisely where the conflict comes. So they would, they, would welcome, they would welcome a North Korean escalation and would not be worried about a nuclear arms race in Asia. They would not participate in a nuclear arms race if North Korea goes nuclear. I think, I think, here's the thing, right? 
I think that if the, the, the conventional wisdom is if North Korea goes nukes, then Japan will go nukes, South Korea will go nukes, Taiwan will go nukes. I'd be very surprised. I would be stunned if Japan goes nuclear just because North Korea does. Right? Now, I know that most people disagree. But here's the reason why. Right? North Korea doesn't really pose that much of a threat to Japan. It's hard to imagine the conditions under which North Korea is going to start lobbing bombs at Japan. Now, I know they, they shot off that one missile in 97, right? And so Japan is sort of talking about theater missile defense and things like that. But in terms of, in terms of the region and what people are, are worried about, don't forget that Koizumi was talking about normalizing ties with Japan. He went to Pyongyang, I mean, with North Korea, he went to Pyongyang twice in the last two years, talking about normalizing before his term was up. The thing that's held him up is the abductees issue. It's not that they were firmly in the U.S. stance at all on the North Korea issue. The South Koreans are the same, right? You talk to South Koreans, America, here's the thing that happens often in D.C. That's how can they be so naive? Don't they realize how dangerous North Korea is? And I say, well, you know, <laughs> we're worried about North Korean strength. We're worried about their nukes. The countries in the region aren't really that worried that North Korea is going to use the nukes on them. They've been deter deterred for 50 years. They're going to be deterred again. Right? We're worried not actually because North Korea would even use them there, but because they might sell them to uh, you know, Libya. Right? Now, and just on a side note, you note that that first came out that it was Libya. Turns out, no, it was really Pakistan that transferred that. Okay? But that's what we're worried about. They're not worried about North Korean strength. They're worried about North Korean weakness, meaning economic collapse, chaos, etc., etc. And all the countries in the region, have been, including Russia, have been saying to the United States, you're focused on the wrong thing. Japan is sidetracked by the abductees issue. I have another prediction. There's a shorter-term prediction. I was just over there. And uh, there's one abductee. She's dead. They falsified the remains when they gave them back. Big fury in Japan. There's a feeling that the 16-year-old daughter, who's this really pretty girl, who's very well-spoken, if they let her go to Japan, they would get the abductee issue to dissipate. Right? But I think the United States, we, we miss... What's going on? Yeah, they might be afraid of that stuff, but there's a lot more going on. Uh, one, yeah, go ahead. Um, I want to go back to the, the, the general framework of uh, hierarchy of stability. Pajani, Pajani. Much of your talk <laughs> actually is about the mature, uh, kind of like institutional mature incentive, like an open market, institutionalized uh, China signal, peaceful intentions. So the traditional hierarchical system in East Asia was largely based on culture. That is, the Confucianism mm -hmm. culture. These are the kind of uh, neighboring states paying lip service in exchange for real autonomy, and home like Korea mm -hmm. or Vietnam. Vietnam. But those material incentives for um, hierarchy can, can go up and down. What if, in case, for instance, China's market shrinks? I mean, these are really incentives right now. Yeah, I, and, that, and that's the thing, which is why, like, I sort of go back and forth between how much I want to focus on sort of a, a... I have a chapter on sort of the historic hierarchy, you know, in, in where I really go through it in detail. Um, and I think the one thing that could, that could derail this is, you know, if China does go into this kind of, you know, if the banking system collapses and there's this bad... I mean, there's a lot of things that go wrong in China's domestic economy that could stop its growth tomorrow if it implodes, et cetera, et cetera. In which case, then, what you get is a, you know, a somewhat rich country, clear, still modernizing, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess in that sense, going back, you know, maybe I am talking more about material, uh, material factors, which would then lead to caring about their intentions. If China is just sort of one medium-sized country, then I don't think other countries would care so much about its intentions one way or the other. You know, I mean, they, they, would, they, they would care, but it would, it would cease to be this, okay, we're going to have to deal with this massive country and the, you know, sort of natural gravitational center of Asia. Um, so i got to think that through. Yeah. Unlikely to go be medium <laughs> I mean, yeah, on the whole, that's why I said on the whole, it, even now, that's why I put those things up. It doesn't matter, really. There's still every big. I mean, yeah. 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 Y
Taiwan, Let me write this down. Taiwan, of course, uh, doesn't uh, meet the status of a sovereign state under international law. So that uh, um, sends a different, you know, puts it in a different position. You don't mention that, huh. of course. Yeah. And, and therefore, um, China's interest toward Taiwan and its relations with Taiwan are not viewed as aggressive by the other states in the region who understand the international legal principles involved. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's, of course, maybe okay. two other smaller yeah. ones. When after 9/11, when the United States wanted to have kind of free-range military force in the Philippines and in Indonesia, that was rejected. Um, and you know, the Philippines have been quite clear about the That's good point. Of military forces. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you might uh, find this possible parallel with Hitler in the 1930s, uh, because he was sending a lot of he was a master chief talk to the ladies from the uh, but as soon as he came in his chancellor, the first thing he did is reassure the Poles by signing the Russian Peace Pact Act. And every single one of his foreign policies hmm. throughout the 1930s uh, emphasized how he was war and would never go to war again with an aggressor, that he was a racist, so therefore it would be crazy for him to conquer another country because then he'd get a bunch of inferior people, so he'd make him sick of his And that he had some minor readjustment in the case of Taiwan, which is insane. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to Randy's point, you know, because I think, you know, I was, I was, when I was originally sort of working through this, well, not originally, but in the latest iteration, I was talking about sort of credible commitments and information problems, the two things the rat choicers have identified as causal mechanisms for war. You know, and I'm not sure how any potentially predominant hegemonic power can credibly commit not to push people around. I mean, I couldn't find how you could come up with it, right? Basically, people are sort of stuck. And this may be, you know, this is why this is why it's good to have this kind of thing because I'm in the middle of trying to think this through. You're sort of stuck, hoping that they're right, right now. But here's the thing, right? Because if you really think that okay, there's no way that we can really trust them one way or the other. I mean, you know, they can change their mind at any point. Then these countries right now should be clinging to the U.S. far more than they are. And it's true that yeah, you know, they haven't had to choose, but boy, they could be doing a lot more. I think, and you know, domestic. You know, I just wonder how you keep up. Everybody understands that as well. 
I have more of that in, in the thing. I didn't emphasize it here and I got off track, but absolutely. I mean, that's why they say peaceful rise. You know, the Communist Party has one source of legitimacy left, which is economic growth, you know. Um, yeah, in the back. Yeah, I'm struck that no one's mentioned India. Like, as far as the Inter-Pound Grill in East Asia, it seems to me that India has been doing like four or five hundred pound points since, like, now you guys deal with the catch-up. And I'm a little bit concerned that the definition of East Asia is about to close in the beginning. Excludes, right, Russia and India, and the rest of them we already sort of bought through that, right? You have six million slots facing 400 million Manchurians and that. But, but it seems to me that India is a country with a very deep territorial dispute and a lot of cultural hostility. I was in India for a month last year, and I kept hearing all the time, you know, this whole 9-11 thing, and you guys have gotten, you Americans have gotten completely wrong. The Arabs are not the problem, it's the Americans. We built our nukes not the point of the Pakistanis, but the point of the Chinese. You should be helping us. Why don't we have an Indian American alliance? We're a democracy, but you don't invest here. You take your money to an autocracy that's run by communism. Yeah, there is an Indian American Yeah, I mean, I actually, I mean, I don't disagree with that, but I mean, yeah. you've heard that all the time. And then, yeah. so it's, to me, it's a pretty good question. And, and you, it seems to me by, you have sort of definitionally written out Absolutely. Sort of the territorial dispute with India, which yes. in my mind is fairly real and fairly severe. So saying that China with all the territorial disputes with Vietnam, for example, is far less relevant than the fact that the Indians take these Himalayan rocks very seriously and they want them back. Great point. Is that a role or, or am I... No, I mean, that, that's why I said, in terms of defining the region, I'm not at all surprised that India views China differently than East Asian states do. They're in a different region, right? They interact with each other differently. You could write a great book on China-India relations that's oblique to the argument that I'm making about how China is talking to East Asia. But, okay? but, if China, but China can't signal that it's beneficent if it's, if it's got relations with other states that sort of create other signals. Energy just sure like can. Saying those signals don't count, we're just going to pretend yeah, like it's a, diff it's a different awesome. relationship. You know what I'm saying? Like, of course, we do this but, all but, the but time. I want to see how it's talk to India, right? South Korea can see how it's talk to India. No, no, I mean, no, I honestly, right? You, what, what you do is you've got a country here, the East Asian states say, all right, that's a relationship over there with that other country, right? Not every country in the world is worried about America invading them, looking for uh, ghost-like weapons of mass destruction, right? It's not like Bolivia sits around or whatever, you know, South Africa sits around and says, oh, they're coming after us next, right? They know that there's a different reason that they're interacting this way there and this way here, and I don't think that's a problem. In terms of the, that's why I spent so much time at the beginning defining the region. Right? I am not saying, and this was harder when I was talking about hierarchy, but even if I was going to state that a cultural, historical way in which China's always interacted, they're not going to interact that way with Europeans and Indians. You know, they'll interact with, the, with their region that they've done, and they'll have different types of relations with those others. Now, it could happen that an India-China conflict somehow spills over and draws in blah, 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 and could upset it. But, I, you know, in, for the region that I'm talking about, which is North and Southeast Asia, yeah, they're going to act differently, the same way that we act differently to a bunch of different regions. And that doesn't negate one or the other. You know, um, that's just not what I'm doing. Yeah. I, I really like the shift from hierarchy to hegemony. I know. <laughs> All right, I give up. I surrender. <laughs> what, I, what I see is, is the mechanisms you're talking about are very similar to Eisenhower, very similar to similar to style, very similar to talking about benign hegemony yeah. and socialization. Um, getting others to come into your side. The thing that you're really adding here, that they're really, they're, they're saying that that's most common after war, after a major war. What, what was the major war here? China's able to do this sort of on its own. If, if, you're, if you're right, China's able to do this. That's a good point. And it's a non-democratic yeah. problem. Yeah. Um, so this is really adding something to that logic. Yeah. 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 If you're right. Right, young men. No, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean that's you know, and in a way, I think you know, because I was I was reading actually Mike Mike Messendino has a piece on U.S. hegemony in East Asia, and the way that he talks about it is sort of a shared social purpose, overweening power, but a shared social purpose that the other countries believe. And so I think you know, I think I do have to I, I have to drop off. There's no reason if, if other people have already come up with concepts, I don't need a new one. You know, um, how long do we go? I don't want to keep you guys. You said 1:15. One, one more question, I guess. Okay. No, everyone's done. No? Do you have any more predictions? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got a million of them, right? <laughs> what does China want? What is China want? Like, do you think, I, I don't know, I just want to hear yeah. what do they want? Right. Do you want me to answer? Oh. They want to rule the world. I want to thank everybody for coming, and mostly I want to thank David. <laughs> for giving us a, a really stimulating talk. <laughs>
It's always good to be provoked. That was that was very helpful. This is great. Thanks for having me. So you're clearly in the Shambaugh camp now. Well, you he's in my camp. No, no, yeah, yeah, that, well, he's really flipped around. And yeah, he has. You know, he's, I just read by him. And and engages Asia or whatever. Right? Well, well it's just the, yeah, the, the ISPs. ISPs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, with, it's you and beyond. Yeah. It's, you know, and that's where I say it's not, He's not arguing only that China's perceived that way. He's saying China is that way. Yeah. I mean, I probably, I, I actually agree with you. It is. Well, I'm not sure it's perceived as quite as benign. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really know. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, that's I've been, I've been interested in how much Shambaugh's come around on this. Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's the interesting thing. It's like.